0: Hey there, welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm your host, R.J. Heyman. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, David Zoll and Sarah Condon. We come to you every other Friday to explore some of the ways in which we see grace and its absence or opposite playing out in the world around us. We're so glad you joined us.
1: Praise the Lord.
2: Praise Well, my friends, you're back. March is here. And uh, so are you. I'm so glad to have you here today. How was the two week break or the, I guess, I guess three week break now. Everything okay on the Condon front and the Heyman household?
1: Oh, yeah it's awesome we've had strep throat we've had parent teacher conferences it's been an amazing few weeks off
2: <laughs> yeah i kind of was getting the sense from the post that you put up uh, about uh, imputation parenting it sounds yeah. like the, the wheels were coming off the bus there for, for a, <laughs> when are they ever on the bus right they're never That's, on the bus. <laughs> what about you rj
0: we are heading into spring break next week, which means we're trying to uh, sort of end of quarter, you know, for my seventh grader and uh, sophomore. So I think my sophomore was up until one thirty last night, finishing a paper and science lab, and my seventh grader miraculously. He always does this thing where the first two weeks of the semester he totally bombs everything, and then by the end he gets all his grades up to an A. And this time we're like, it's not going to happen. There's, there's just no way. There's no way. So we had one final math test. He had to get a 98 on. He got a 102, which is beyond belief. And he just, he has like an 89.7 in math, which rounds up to an A minus. So I'm proud of the kid. But things have been stressful around here. It's you know, late, late nights, early mornings, lots of schoolwork. So that's. Mm. But next week is vacation. Praise God. I hope that was. Wasn't too much humble bragging it might have been
2: a <laughs> chip off the old block we all know how uh, sarah i think yesterday showed me a test where her son had done so well that she didn't even understand his answer yeah he's and, in uh, first grade rj you guys clearly are both great parents with wonderful children
0: Well, I will say yesterday, he had an online English test to take, which was grammar. And I thought I was helping him. I think I actually caused him to get two wrong answers because I was misidentifying adverbs. So that was an unhelpful moment. I felt really guilty. He's like, dad, don't feel bad. It's not your fault. I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure it is my fault. So anyway, Uh,
2: it it was right back then, you know, 10 years ago, this is what the grammar said.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, Oh my gosh. Grammar tests were like, they, I mean, I remember meeting my teacher teacher mrs lyle's early in the morning to work on grammar tests that i would literally make 28s on so anyway i'm not helpful with grammar or math by the way so what do you do for a living sarah that you're not good at grammar i can teach them about southern literature that will be my skill set when they cover that for like two weeks in ninth grade i'll be like
2: perfect (laughs) You don't forget the 28 you get, do you?
1: No, no.
2: Mm -hmm. Did either of you guys happen to catch the Oscars broadcast?
0: I did. I raced home. I had to work the 6 p.m. service at church, but I jumped in my car at 7.10, turned on my DirecTV now on Mm -hmm. my phone so I could watch it. I missed the kind of opening uh, montage they they always do, but I think I maybe missed one award presentation, but then watched the next three hours compulsively (laughs) because... I like the Oscars. I like the movies.
1: Mm -hmm. Sarah, did you watch? I feel so bad. This is the first year I didn't watch. And like, we totally (laughs) could have. We just, you know, we were going to talk about this piece where you know less and less people are watching but judge me but we are josh really wanted to watch it and i was like i can't handle people getting up and talking about politics for three hours babe i just can't do it and so we didn't watch it no i mean it was
2: also the first year i didn't watch it for a long time and i don't know if it was even that conscious that i wanted to avoid the virtue signaling or being lectured, or it, it, it was a combination of not having seen a lot of the movies and possibly you know I think I really wanted to see that HBO show divorce. That's on. That's so good. Like that was on, on Sunday night that and crashing. And I was more interested in seeing those. And so it's like, like you, Sarah, we were almost living out these articles. I was reading afterwards. Cause I was more interested in television mm-hmm. than in film right now.
0: Mm-hmm. There was a great Babylon B headline, which I saw on Facebook, basically about how, you know, Jimmy Kimmel is lecturing America on, you know, gender equality when he was a founder of the man show, you know, oh, which featured God. the women like bouncing oh, up goodness. and down on the, uh, the Trampoline, you know, and it's like, oh yeah, remember when Jimmy I Kimmel totally and about uh, who is his, who is his sidekick, who's the big time car guy, Adam Carolla? Adam yes. Kroll, that's right. They started that show, which was just you know obnoxiously and overtly chauvinistic. And now that you know, ten years amazing. later, he's the paragon. That's Isn't it crazy? crazy? It's kind of crazy. I mean, not that I don't yeah. like Jimmy Kimmel, but it's uh, wow. Okay, yeah. Let's let's remember. No, for it a does. Moment.
2: The hypocrisy kind of boggles the mind. I guess it, it, it's it's really hard not to. I mean, I, I wanted Lady Bird to win. I think that was the the, the movie I really loved this year. Was Lady Bird. I haven't seen a bunch of the other films. Like I feel like Coco was incredible, and and Lady Bird. And you know, Ross Duthat in this article, "The Autumn of the Oscars," he actually mentions that Hollywood has become a superhero movie factory. But what it's done is. True. My wife and I are always talking about, they don't make that kind of movie anymore. And usually what we're talking about is like a somewhat mainstream drama that would get a big audience, like a terms of endearment, almost like in as as good as it gets, or there's the rom-coms that are like either Nicholas Sparks kind of hyper rom or complete farcical, which are just all calm. And there's very little... You know, Judd Apatow's about where it meets these days, but you have these superhero movies that then fund the rest of what people want to do. And because not that many movies get made, they tend to be these smaller passion projects, message movies, which naturally become more of a platform for preaching. And, uh, you know, a lot of us are too tired at the end of the day to want to hear more hectoring, I think. But do you guys think that's true?
0: Yeah, definitely. I'm sort of sick of superhero movies. I hate to say this, I really want to see Black Panther. I haven't seen Black Panther yet because I feel like the last few, like I loved Guardians of the Galaxy, but volume two was, it was okay. You know, it was okay. And I feel like the last few big blockbusters that got great reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, I watched and I was like, meh. Mm. But we actually did, we binge watched a lot of the nominees the week before. We didn't see the post because it's not on video. We didn't see... Call Me By Your Name we didn't see Phantom Thread but we saw all the rest and also the Itanya movie which I thought was good but actually my favorite movie last year was The Florida Project oh, did you I guys see that? that. I, don't see that. No, I oh. and most people I know say it, it should have won It was it's the best movie it should movie. have won the fact that it wasn't even nominated it is so different and like my wife said after we watched it's like well I just feel like I spent an hour and a half in a cheap Florida motel <laughs> which is not necessarily the best feeling but the acting is incredible the writing is incredible the shot making it's a beautiful movie And it's just different, Mm -hmm. you know, it just has a little bit of a different feel and it's heartbreaking, like beautifully heartbreaking. So I was disappointed that it was not nominated, but I was happy shape of water. I thought that was my favorite. And in terms of the content of the movies, you know, I know we're going to talk a little bit about this later on in today's podcast, but there was a ton of imputation Mm -hmm. in this year's best picture nominees, a powerful imputation. And so uh, I thought that was encouraging.
2: I mean, you would know better because I haven't seen
0: enough of them. And I feel like usually I'm. I mean, do you see three billboards? Have you seen three billboards? I haven't or yet. Is- That's
2: the top of my list is three billboards because I, you know, the amount of people yeah. that have said, Hey, has Mockingbird written about three billboards yet? It seems to have so much to say. And we had did highlight what Alyssa Wilkinson wrote about Flannery O'Connor and kind of some of the grace that sort of comes through hardened people. But it is interesting that it's not just that we want to avoid these Self righteousness of a self congratulatory elite, though I think that is a big part of it. It's really that Hollywood doesn't make these kind of movies that are even available to everyone. Oscar bait now is its own genre, it feels like. There's superhero movies, blockbusters, and there's Oscar bait. Where's the gross point blank? Or where is the big chill? Like even the Back to the Futures. Like why wasn't Logan or Blade Runner nominated for Best Picture? Those are both incredible films. But it's like genre wise, they get taken out of it. I'd be very surprised if Black Panther wasn't nominated this coming year. And oh, I also loved Get Out. We got to pretty- talk about Get that Out because it was
1: amazing. I mean, Josh and I watched that the other day. Thank God that you can just like watch these things on your television now. It was incredible. Jordan Peele's mom went to Josh's church in Manhattan. And so we always like liked to watch him because she's such a lovely person. And, you know, it was also interesting to watch this horror movie about this black guy who gets pulled into this terrifying situation because he dating this white girl and to be like what was jordan's mom thinking when she was watching this <laughs> but anyway it was yeah it's fantastic movie
2: how about uh, allison williams in that movie yeah, she's so oh crazy. my goodness she's probably the scariest character totally. of the year the by scene far. with the
1: white crisp shirt and the pulled back ponytail i was like she is the scariest thing i've seen on the screen recently yeah she's amazing
0: she went all in yeah I don't want to give away too much, but in 3 billboards there are a number of different moments where one character who has no business showing any love or grace whatsoever and really is totally justified in showing the opposite to another character unexpectedly shows a uh, tremendous compassion. That was beautiful. I also thought about, you know, as I was reading some of the articles we're going to discuss today, I perked up during Ladybird when uh, her sort of first boyfriend is up there reading that piece of scripture about Abraham from Genesis. And it's about, um, you know, Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. But the version he reads at his Catholic school actually says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as an act of righteousness, which is a totally different thing, a totally different theology. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. But then, of course, in thinking about that movie and realizing that the whole thing's about imputation, about the daughter wanting her mother to impute righteousness and loveliness to her daughter and the mom being incapable of doing that. But then, of course, ironically, the character who is able to impute righteousness and loveliness to Lady Bird is the nun. Mm you know, who loves the joke about just being married and at the end says, you know, you you clearly love Sacramento when the whole thing is actually just about how terrible Sacramento is, which, uh, you know, being someone who now lives in a city that's universally derided, I can sympathize <laughs> with, you know, no one vacations in Houston. Uh, it's not a hot destination, as they say, but once you get here, it ain't so bad, mm. I gotta say. So there's, there's more. I mean, Dunkirk has an incredible moment of imputation when one of the characters is killed by another mm-hmm. one, but is shown mercy. Uh, you know, it killed in a, I mean, it's a, it's a war movie, so people get killed. But this particular killing is of an innocent, mm. and, and sort of uh, stems out of someone's anxiety. And then, it, but another character shows him grace. He, he understands that he can't handle the weight of that particular sin at that moment. So I just thought there was uh, grace and imputation all over the place.
2: Mm. You know, one thing that, uh, Brian Gerald, our social media guy was sent me a lengthy article about the jet ski thing that was going on. Jimmy Kimmel at the beginning, showed the entire audience this beautiful jet ski with Helen Mirren sort of draped on it like a Vanna White character and said the person with the shortest speech wins this jet ski and and is a clever running gag. Though, of course, you wonder what if they had said the person with the shortest speech, we will donate $50,000 to the charity of your choice. Would they just say thank you? And what's more important that people know that you're enlightened or that you're on the side of the just and the good or that you actually are on the side of the just and the good I mean it's a I don't want to poo-poo everything the, if people are allowed to have a conscience and allowed to use their platform it's just that it turns out like the pulpits around the country when all you do is talk yeah. about politics people tune you out they just <laughs> stop showing up because the whole world is talking about politics and sometimes you just want a story to take you away and to reach your heart like the ones that like three billboards clearly did with you are Jay, but I, I, that was the Brian's experiment is how much money do you think it would cost for people to actually just not give a big speech or say, thank you to my mom. Thank you to my wife. God bless. Or, you know, universe be praised and then kind of get off the stage. Universe be praised.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a good question. I, I was interested in it because my family once won a jet ski and we were like very excited about it. So it was funny to me the contrast everybody's doing it do. <laughs> exactly. so. And it was like in the early, no, it was like the late 90s. So it was like the time to have a jet ski. Mm. My parents ended up selling it to get wood floors, but still <laughs> it's, uh, it's a sad, sad
2: thing <laughs> when, when people sell their jet skis. I had to think like when, when, when they showed Kenny powers on that jet ski and eastbound it down, it was kind of the, the nail oh in the coffin gosh. for <laughs> jet ski owners everywhere. Uh, I remember we had, my uncle had some jet skis and then they all, they got sold lo and behold, like three or four years ago. Yeah. It's just not a jet yeah. ski nation these days. But it is a nation in which we don't know ourselves as well as we think. This is an article in The Atlantic by Adam Grant, the very prominent social scientist, who reports on 16 rigorous studies of thousands of people at work have shown that people's coworkers are better than they are at recognizing how their personality will affect their job performance. As a social scientist, if I want to get a read on your personality, I could ask you to fill out a survey on how stable, dependable, friendly, outgoing, and curious you are. But I'd be much better off... Asking your coworkers to rate you on those same traits. They're often more than twice as accurate. They can see things that you can't or won't. And these studies reveal that whatever you do know about yourself that your coworkers don't is basically irrelevant to your job performance. People know themselves best on traits that are tough to observe and easy to admit—emotional stabilities and internal states. So your friends don't see it as vividly as you do. But with more observable traits, we don't have unique knowledge. If you're a raging extrovert or a radical introvert, we don't need to ask you. We can pick it up pretty quickly from your impromptu karaoke performances or your complaints that your husband types too loudly. With the most evaluative traits. You just can't be trusted. You probably want to convince everyone and yourself that you're smart and creative. And this is why people consistently overestimate their intelligence, a pattern that seems to be more pronounced among men than women. It's also why people overestimate their generosity. It's a desirable trait. And it's why people fall victim to my new favorite bias, the I'm not biased bias, where people tend to believe they have fewer biases than the average American but you can't judge whether you're biased because when it comes to yourself you're the most biased judge
1: of all. RJ, this is actually an intervention because we both work <laughs> with you and we feel like there's a lot of things we need to talk about.
0: The funny thing is I would not be surprised <laughs> if that were
1: actually true. <sighs> I loved this. I think, uh, well, the idea also that we're, you know, we now call ourselves people who don't have biases is like the new way to categorize yourself. I mean, I think it points obviously to just further and further a lower and lower anthropology. Just when I think it's like low anthropology is really like playing. Um, is it limbo? Is that the name of the game? With oh, how yeah. low Can you go? Yeah, it just gets lower. You know what I mean? Like eventually you're just like with the dust on the floor, but I love self-awareness. It's super painful but it's also really helpful. And this points to our like huge lack of it, a huge lack of self-awareness about how we behave, why we behave, what we're good at. I mean, it does also to me point a bit towards imputation just because people in my office will be like, oh, well, you're really good at this. And I'm like, am I? You know, it's this like outside observation. Somebody speaks over you that perhaps is more psychological imputation. But anyway, it's interesting. I think it would be helpful in more work settings If we actually did this kind of work together, I mean, I think that would be fascinating for people to sit down and say, here's what I observe about you. Here's what I think you're good at. Here's what I think you're not good at. But, you know, I know it's not I know it's not everybody's cup of tea, but like, I think it would be helpful. Mm, RJ's face was like, no, Sarah, it would not be helpful.
0: Please don't tell me what you think of me. Please don't, don't tell me what you think about me. Please, please don't. Please, please don't.
1: I think you're a really hard worker. I think you're really smart. I think you're very organized.
0: And I don't believe a word you just said. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't. It doesn't even matter. Uh, I'm sure this article was timed to coincide with review season because that's oh re- evaluation God. season because that's where we are right now. You know, I'm sure, Sarah. Have you filled out your evaluation at uh, work? Dave do you, mm-hmm. do you do evaluations at Mockingbird Ministries? Oh god no. He yeah does. exactly. Yeah they're that's, really yeah, that's what I thought, on us. Yeah, Which um I think you know <laughs> have speaks. You
2: even, have you read our website recently? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: But so reading that, I was like, okay, so I guess, yeah, evaluations, they're really painful and I can't stand doing them or receiving them. But if this is true, then I suppose it's helpful to hear from someone else about what they think about me. And it actually has been helpful in the past, you know, to help me see things that I couldn't quite see. And then I also thought, you know... The tough thing about work evaluations and honesty is that they're offered in a context that is not unconditionally loving. They're offered in a conditional context where you might get Mm -hmm. fired. Right. You know, where it might just be like, maybe this place isn't the best fit for you anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a marriage. It's not a friendship. It's not a, a loving relationship. It's a conditional environment. The last thing I thought was, okay, so it's great to have some degree of self-knowledge, but does having that knowledge actually enable you to improve? And I'm not sure that it does. Like, Is the best you can do... To just be aware of yourself and maybe try to mitigate some of your faults or to, you know, hire to your weaknesses, as they say, if you're a boss or something like that, or do people actually change as a result of these evaluations in any kind of meaningful way? Like what's the end game here?
2: Yeah. I mean, I obviously don't think they actually, they do change. I mean, that's all Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, you know, men who've spent their lives getting Nobel prizes, studying uh, self-awareness and learning about their blind Spots and yet can say in that book, Thinking Fast and Slow, that after all these years, it hasn't changed his own instincts almost at all which is a terrifying thing to hear but you also wonder you know maybe there's a sense in which as you come to know yourself better and maybe your anthropology gets forcibly lowered by life and by suffering and by the world and you do come to perhaps have a little more patience for other people when they turn out to be just as recidivistic or uh, paralyzed as you are and I
1: think you have more grace towards yourself Mm. I mean that's why I like to be like maybe I'm just biased but I like to think of myself as being fairly self-aware. I have put in like 12 years of therapy at this point. And I think there's something about like, you know, this mean to use Christian language, like the same sin happens in my life. And I'm like, Hey, old friend, you know, as opposed to like aggressively (laughs) going after myself. The other thing that strikes me about this, RJ, you talk about sort of the dynamic of this, not being in marriage, not being in friendship. I think about moments in my own marriage or even in friendship with other people where I have like done, and this is part of my own personality flaws, but done something in evaluation, like said things I shouldn't say and how horrible that is. Do you know what I mean? Because there should be an understanding in marriage and in friendship like, I will tell this story on myself. I was going to spend some time with a friend and I can't remember. She had some big life thing happening and I walked into her house and it was crazy. And like the first thing that came out of my mouth was like, dude, you got to clean up your house. And it was like this noticeable like chip <laughs> in the room.
0: Pastor Sarah not, Cundin, exactly, ladies Where and gentlemen. she's
1: like... You know, I was like, you could see her brain was like, hold up, we're friends, you know? So I think when this evaluation narrative yeah, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's helpful at work sometimes. Maybe it's not helpful at work, but it's definitely not helpful in other avenues of our lives. <laughs> so,
0: Well, it, it reminds me, of course, of that I've probably talked about this before, you know, the Gerhard Ford, that sanctification is just the art of getting used to your justification. Mm-hmm. And that I used to think, and I think there's some truth to this, right? In your career, hopefully you pick up competencies and skills and you get better at some stuff. But at the end of the day, progressing in your career is probably mainly about learning to live with yourself and to be mer- Merciful with yourself and to know your strengths, know your weaknesses, and then sort of hopefully model that grace to the people around you. It's not about being changed. It's about getting comfortable with who you are and recognizing that you you might Mm -hmm. not change.
2: Yeah, self-awareness usually is not valueless. It doesn't mean that people don't change. It just means that they often don't change by having their weaknesses pointed out to them. In fact, that is a surefire way to create self-consciousness and distance, but doesn't mean that it's not true. I remember being in a room with some people, we were working together and we were talking about the need for communication and someone said, you know, I really want you to tell me when there's an issue bubbling up so we don't get resentful and, you know. I think that you might have even used a Bible verse about sunsetting on anger and all that stuff. And this other guy who understands the gospel far better than me said, "I actually don't want you to tell me, <laughs> please, <laughs> yeah. please, that's too exhausting. I'm awesome. I, I making mistakes. All, I'm not going to hold you responsible for cataloging my indiscretions. Uh, let God do that. And you know, if I'm about to step on your neck, let me know. But otherwise, please be easy. Go easy on me.
0: <laughs>
2: it that's made me want to work more yeah. with the
0: person. That's awesome. So." And on the flip side, I remember, you know, five years ago or so when I started in this job, I was maybe in evaluation or maybe just in a conversation talking with my boss. And I said something along the lines of, you know, hey, I know I'm not very pastoral. Like, that's not my gift. I'm not a pastoral person. And he said, well, actually, you know, RJ, I kind of think you are. And I think you're getting better at that. And I was like, well, you'll get to know me better and you'll see that I don't (laughs) actually care about people. But I'll say five (laughs) years later... I think I'm a little better pastor than I used to be.
1: Yeah. I would never say that you weren't pastoral. That's so interesting. That's your self descriptor. Yeah. It's funny. Cause Sarah, I would never say that you're self aware. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That's actually yeah. really just, true though. Like pro- no one would ever be like, name five things to describe Sarah Condon. Self aware. Self
0: aware. On that list. You know what I think? I think, I think mod- moderation, loud. moderation yeah, is a word exactly. I'd associate with Sarah Condon. <laughs> <laughs> anyway,
2: well, let's talk about the elephant in the room or just the big squawking bird that's... Don't talk about me like that, Dave. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about imputation. Imputation is a word we throw around a lot. And I think it's worth defining here. Sarah wrote an absolutely stunning piece about it as it relates to parenting. And, um, but we've got a lot of talk about imputation over the years on Mockingbird. I'll read to you from our glossary. Imputation is the idea that God reconciles sinners to himself by declaring them to be righteous on account of Christ. In and of themselves they remain the same sinful person. This is how the Augsburg Confession puts it. Christ's merits are given to us so that we might be reckoned righteous by our trust in the merits of Christ when we believe in him as though we had merits of our own. In the imputation understanding of atonement, God is interested in people giving up any idea at all of there being a price that could be paid to earn his love or forgiveness. It does away with all models of merits in our relationship to God. Jesus saved us purely by giving his life as a ransom for many, John 3, 17. Rather than seeing the human condition as one merely of sick people needing to be cured, this approach views us more along the lines of the walking dead who need to be brought to life. It can also be useful to talk about analogies for imputation in the world around us. Whenever we are shown love when we do not deserve it, when we are loved by someone right in the middle of our quote-unquote unlovability, we see an analogy for imputation, which is love to the loveless shown. Now, we can talk about the difference between the theology and psychology of imputation in a minute, but before we do that, Sarah, can you tell us a little bit, just for those who haven't read it yet, perhaps, about Ruth Graham and what she had to say at uh, her father's funeral.
1: Sure. Yeah. Ruth Graham told this story. It sounds like she's told a lot in her family about being, and I love that she was so much older. So she's an older woman at this point, failed first marriage, starts attending church, moves close to her sister, starts attending church. The pastor there introduces her to this widower and she kind of has like a fast and furious marriage that everyone including her dad Billy Graham had told her to you know kind of take a pause no one told it didn't sound like people told her not to but they kind of told her to take a pause and she didn't listen to them and married this guy and very quickly knew that it was a bad bad marriage and she tells this story about driving up the mountain, which I just love that. Driving up the mountain to her parents' home and her dad meeting her in the driveway and him just saying, Welcome home to her, loving her and accepting her when he could have done something so different. So I mm. found that very compelling. I mean, You know, I wrote about imputation and parenting because that concept more than anything else has had such an impact on not just the way we parent, but like the tone of our household. I tend to have sort of like a setting people straight, if you guys haven't noticed, mentality in the world. And I can tell you that as much as that may work or may not work in the world and in ministry. It doesn't work by the way, but, um, but it really doesn't work when you're parenting. <laughs> it's actually pretty harmful yeah. to your children, I think. And that's been my experience and we've resigned in this odd way, just to not do that and just to like love our kids and to be with them in the moment of their pain or their grief or they're just like honestly being a pain in the ass. I Mm. have parents around me who I've seen do that and if I'm being totally honest, RJ is one of those parents that I've heard him talk about the way he parents his boys and it is in this way that It feels like he's not above them. It feels like he's in it with them. And that's the kind of parent that we really long to be. So what I talk about in the story is that a couple of weeks ago, we got this, you know, tough report about our kids' behavior. And, you know, we being very self-aware, people realized that we'd had a crazy week and, you know, everyone has probably not had a lot of sleep. And I said to Josh, like, what are we going to do? Like, should we punish him? Should we take something away? And Josh just goes, we're going to love the hell out of that kid this weekend. (laughs) I was like, oh my God, this is imputation. Like, like, we've been sort of doing this for about, I would probably say about a year and a half. And now it's like, it's become so in the front of our brains as to how we sort of parent when things are hard. The thing I want to say about this also is that piece went up, Mr. David Zoll, and it took exactly five minutes for me to get a direct message from somebody that's like, yeah, but what about consequences? Like, it was crazy (laughs) how short, I mean, when you say to people, Just love your children. Just be with them in their pain. Love them even when they're really unlovable. It sends people over the edge every single time. It's crazy to me. Like, we don't want to do that. And I think we don't want to do it because I think it's too hard for us to imagine that God loves us that way. And if we accept that God loves us that way, then we also have to accept that, like, we're also, like, completely powerless over our behavior. And no one wants to say that out loud. But, gosh, I mean, accept it, folks. It ain't magic, mm-hmm. but like I'm a whole lot calmer, right, RJ? Don't I seem calmer? Yeah.
0: So calm, <laughs> so so centered.
1: <laughs> well, it,
2: it, you're right, Sarah. It does provoke a reaction, a monumental reaction in people. And you want to say, well, have you tried consequences? And and you know there are certain things. Well, maybe maybe consequences work, but when it comes to the real deep things, try consequences. Right. See Good how shot. it how it goes. Like imputation is really for people for whom consequences have just not. Broken the yes. back of the problem. What people hear is like, there's never a consequence. It, there's a consequence whether we as a parent enforce it or not. The world brings yes. consequences. Like, you know, you put your, your hand in the fire and it gets burned. My father always talks about imputation really being the mechanism of grace because you wonder, well, what is this? How's the difference between grace and imputation? Well, imputation is simply the way grace works, to put it lightly. And yet, it doesn't have to work because it's grace, which is why it so often does. It doesn't have to, you know, as someone on your post very rightly pointed out, well, isn't this just a new technique, a new way of getting your kids to become what you want them to become? And I thought you put it very clearly in that, um, not really, you know, no. you can't game this one, you know, and even if you could, it's still better by the way, than, it, like exacting yeah. really ho- like harsh consequences. It's still yeah. air on the side of that, but it's still all that's yeah. left. people are their um, own
1: consequences, right? People are their own consequences. Like we see this over and over again. I just, you know, I don't want to like go into advice mode about parenting, but if you're a parent, I think the best thing you can do is look around you at other people who are parenting and the way that they're doing it. And the people that you're going to be drawn to are the people who have a softness with their children. Like feel free to cut this, but I was around the Zoll family. It's been in the past six months and I saw one of the Zoll kids, Kinda just fall apart on the floor, and do you know what Kate's all did? She got down on the floor with him. It was bananas. She didn't start yelling at him. She didn't boss him around. She got down on the damn floor with that kid, and
2: I was like, "Whoa," you know. So, RJ, you've had a lot more experience at this than us. I I mean, your kids are, as we just heard, they're getting 102 in their math test, so
0: (laughs) which which was they're almost going to miracle of God. Don't speak to that RJ
1: because people always always say like teenagers.
0: No. No 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 no. I actually had a sort of a new thought when I was reading your article and then the definition of imputation because you know th- there has been a lot of debate within the the mocking world about whether it's even proper to talk about imputation in human to human relationships or really if it's really just a if it's only something that exists between God and us. And what occurred to me is that I really think imputation when we talk about it in parenting or friendships or whatever really the better word and this is an easy word it really is mm-hmm. just love. Do you Love that person. You know, and, and think about Ladybird, you know, that great dressing room scene with her mom. You know, mom, I know you love me, but I don't think you like mm. me. And the mom says, Well, you know, I just uh, want you to be the best version of yourself. And she says, What if this is the best version of myself? And, huh? and the mom says, Meh, like, clearly not. <laughs> but I really, <laughs> I'm uh, is going oh, to say, I know cognitively that my sons are not perfect, but I really feel <laughs> like they are. I really do. Like, I love—and this is not—I don't want this to be a credit to me. I think it's a miracle. It's a miracle, you know, that falling in love with another human being, even if you produced them, gave birth to them, it is a miracle. And I I just kind of feel like they're perfect. Like, I love them so much. And I— uh, and I'm, I'm sensitive to the ways that I fail them and, and wound them and say things that I should. But you know I remember my wife, who's much more disciplined than I am, used to before we had kids. She really did have like daily quiet time. She loved it. She would spend like hours with God and praying and journaling and thinking. And that was a huge part of her conversion experience. And it wasn't because she's so disciplined, because she loved doing it. And then we had kids, and she just couldn't do it anymore because she didn't have the time. I remember her saying to me, RJ, I've learned more, I feel like I've learned more about God through having children than I ever learned through reading, praying the Bible, and journaling. Because if God loves me one tenth as much as I love this kid, mm-hmm. I'm fine. Like I would throw myself in front of a bus for this kid with no mm-hmm. questions asked. And no, now, you, RJ, probably not. <laughs> you know, but shoot that. No, which is, is a, pretty, it's a very honest thing for a, for a mom to say. But to me, the answer is not to think about, because whenever. I, someone else is imputing something to me it doesn't feel genuine or when i'm trying to impute something to them it doesn't yeah. it feels a little fake it's like and i also have a tough time believing it's like are you just blowing smoke do you really think that so the answer to me is to love someone and to love someone you have to kind of like get in their skin you got to empathize with them you need to have compassion for them you need to try to see the world from their point of view which to me is sort of the key of marriage there's that incredible podcast by Esther Perel she's a French therapist but she does these one time super intense 3 hour counseling sessions with couples who are in you know extremis like things are not going well And the biggest thing is just trying to get the other person to really, really understand, not just emotionally, where the other person is, to put them in the other person's skin. And I find if you do that, people suddenly become more lovely. Somehow, You know, even if you think they're crazy, even if you don't understand the decisions they make, when you're able by the grace of God to actually empathize, you do love them. And then when you love them, you don't even think about imputation. You just, you know, and I had an experience of this recently with someone who I'll be honest with, you, like, I feel like used to be a friend. I'm not sure if they are anymore. I'm not sure how to feel. And they did something. And I remember thinking, OK, there's two clear ways I could interpret this. And if I love them, I would give them the benefit of the doubt and think about how they did this because they love me and because their motives are pure and they are trying to do the right thing. If I don't love them and I don't think they're my friend, then I'll just see that I'll just feel like they're trying to sabotage me or be backstabbing or, or. so you know, whether or not I was willing to impute righteousness to them was purely a function of how I felt about them. So that's a, a extended monologue, but so maybe actual, genuine, heartfelt, emotional. Love is the way that you impute. And let's be honest, there are times in our marriages where we look to our spouses and we're like, man, I just, I love the hell out of you, you know? And I I love that phrase, actually, Sarah, because that's true. When you love someone, you actually do love the hell out of them. What's that Salisbury? When when sin departs before your grace, then life and health come in its place is is the, the lyrics to one of my favorite Christmas carols, a Sussex carol but there are also moments when you look and you're not loving them and suddenly everything like you're like doing your you're
1: teeth are super crooked you know
0: yeah or <laughs> you're a terrible person <laughs> and i can't believe you did that but it really is how you see the yeah. situation is purely a function of how you feel yeah. about that person. Somehow you got to find a way to get your heart right. And I do feel like a lot of marriage is just figuring out, okay, what are those levers we can pull when things get bad to get back to a place of love? Because when you do, then imputation happens naturally, you know, spontaneously. Yeah. So that was my thought. That's an incredible thought. I mean, it's still the great word. It's a
2: descriptive word for what happens and what you're able to do, and it sounds like what happened to Ruth Graham. It sounds like what happened between Sarah and her kid. And it doesn't mean I don't think we we don't police ourselves to that we have the exact right motivation. But we keep this picture in mind of what imputation looks like. That That's the sun around which our stars rotate. You know, a few years ago, J.D. Koch, he kind of formalized some of what you were just saying, RJ, when he talked about the difference between the theology and the psychology of imputation. The because they are analogous. They are analogous, but they're not exactly the same thing. He says they part ways because one is predicated on the presumption that we can change ourselves and choose to view people in different ways and the other throws us back on the prayer that our hearts, Mm -hmm. not our wills, will be changed and that we will be given to love others even as they are and not as we want them to be. Psychological imputation is the forward-thinking projection onto a person or situation in the hopes of, as the article says, in the hopes of changing their behavior for the worse or should we choose for the better. Theological imputation, on the other hand, from an interpersonal perspective, is what happens when beauty truly falls in love with the beast, who was never a prince, and that doesn't matter in the least. Because none
0: of us are princes.
2: (laughs) And as you say then all of a sudden we can describe it as being true. The the beast does start to act a little bit more beautifully.
0: I remember to Will, our amazing director of student ministries at St. Martin's, Will Colseth, who just understands the gospel 100%. One thing he has done before when he's gotten groups, because he likes to work with parents and not just students, you know, because he recognizes that parents spend a lot more time with their kids than he does. But one exercise he'll have, he'll say, write down three things that you love about your kid, independent of anything they have accomplished. I love this. And a lot of parents struggle Mm -hmm. to do that. Mm -hmm. And it's a real wake up call. So that was one thing. And then just. You know, what I said about, I know cognitively, my kids aren't perfect, but I feel like they are, that I think the gospel is, that's exactly how God looks at us, right? Like, <laughs> assume, you Like, I know they're not perfect, but I feel like they are. Mm-hmm. And if that's the way God feels about us, we're kind of home free. Mm. I know. And that's certainly the, I mean,
2: Sarah, isn't this the great question? How do you then end a discussion of imputation without people walking away hearing the law? Like, okay, well, I need to go impute more or how I've terribly have been at imputing. I thought your piece did such a beautiful job of.
1: Well, I think, I mean, I think what you're saying is not, that's not the point. I mean, the point, the point is that, I mean, it makes me think of, I don't know why, but it makes me think of, um, The Reverend Jacob Smith um, at Calvary St. George's. He had this parishioner who was like, you know, I don't know about this whole Jesus thing. And this parishioner had been showing up for stuff like right and left. I don't know if I'm all in on this. And he's like, that doesn't matter. He's already got you. (laughs) So like... (laughs) I kind of am like, I mean, we can fret back and forth, right? About if we're doing it right. And I, Dave, I love that you're like, try cons- try consequences. Do consequences right in left mm, with your kids. Yes. For my son, when I've done consequences right in life, he literally, and this is totally pertinent to what we're talking about, literally looked at me as a five-year-old and said, I feel like you don't like me very much. Like they'll pick up on that. You know what I mean? You will impute that you do not like them if you do that. So have at it folks. But I was just tired of it. I mean, that's why we write the piece. I'm just, I'm ready to like regularly. I mean, and that's my experience regularly be dumbfounded by the fact that Jesus loves me no matter what. And once that has happened, it's hard for me to practice any other way. I mean, what are the stories about parenting that are compelling to us? I mean, even think back to your own childhood. Like, when are the moments that like were so moving for you? The moments we tell each other are not the moments when it's like, you know, we were super harshly punished. That's not when we're like, oh my God, my parent was so amazing, my mom or my dad, they love me so much. It's the moment when like you wreck the car. And they come in and they give you a hug in your room, right? Like that's the stuff that shapes us. And so it can either shape us one way or it can shape us the other. I mean, I feel like I've offered, you know, more law, but it's just like Mm. try out the other stuff. Definitely spank them, you know, do all those things. That People emailed me immediately asking about spanking. I was like, really? This is what we're doing? So
0: Spare the rod, Sarah. Spare the rod. (laughs) Spank
1: your kids. See how it goes. It'll go great. I promise. It always works. They love being spanked. And you'll feel so good about yourself Afterwards.
0: I think we spanked our kids like three times, but I think we made a pact only in life-threatening situations. You know, there was one time when my son like would not stop running out into traffic. And I finally, I, you know, I,
1: right. I
0: five-starred the poor kid, you know, but he never, <laughs> he never ran into traffic ever again. You That's know, right. well, another kid was always taking off his, his seat belt and just like, you know, playing in the back seat. And same did never happened again, but it was like, you know, when it was, it was sort of a first use type thing. Like this will kill you. Right. And so, um, I'm (laughs) going to inflict a little, like a time, a bit of pains that you don't kill yourself. Right.
1: Um, anyway, yeah. Anyway, those are, those are our parenting suggestions for spanking from Mockingbird.
0: (laughs) The Mockingbird guide to corporal punishment.
1: XOXO. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Oh my goodness! Well, thank you guys. I feel imputed to by each of you every single time we speak, and I'm not just saying that. Though RJ, it's constant. You know, you're over the years, the amount of time you've asked me if I'm blowing smoke is I don't know. I could probably fifty to hundred times you've I asked me. I just question.
0: I can't I can't handle it. I can't handle the love. I don't believe it. That's I'm, that's a little.
2: But then you have RJ showing up at my. Uh, engagement party from Pittsburgh and uh, surprising me even though I'd been a bad friend and had, had not been in touch and had not really deserved anything like it and all of a sudden I see his smiling uh, smooth uh, as a dolphin face staring at me through the little camera on a Manhattan keyhole and I thought to myself this guy actually I think he loves me
0: I think he loves
2: me <laughs> well,
0: that, was, that was fun that was, that was fun
2: Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at infombird.com. At Audio production for the mocking is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time.
1: Praise the
2: Lord God.